Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, today's guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today, we get to interview a distinguished pro-life veteran, Tracy Windsor. She is the co-founder of Be Not Afraid, a Catholic case management service that was founded 12 years ago to assist parents and their children with challenging diagnoses, typically of trisomy, three copies of a chromosome where there should be only two. Now, we're calling today's episode Trisomy, Lives Worth Living, since so many people believe that children with trisomies should not be allowed to be born, let alone be cared for after birth. Uh, This will serve as the second of three Respect Life episodes that will be airing in the month of October, a month when the U.S. Catholic bishops have asked us to focus on efforts to respect and protect all human life. The first episode of this series was the one where Andrew and I interviewed Chris about what being a pro-life OBGYN doctor looks like, and you can still find that on the EWTN website or multiple podcast sites. The last of the three Respect Life episodes is scheduled to air on October 31st, when we'll explore the physical, the psychological, and the spiritual consequences of solitary confinement and loneliness with philosopher Dr. Derek Jeffries. But before diving in today's episode with uh, Tracy, uh, Chris is going to help us to explore what we mean by either life-limiting diagnoses such as trisomy, how often he sees them in his practice, and the other things he thinks that we should know. So Chris, take it away. You know, like so many areas in medicine, and I feel like we say this almost every episode, the vocabulary gets confusing. Uh, We have our own language, and it's made up so often of words that don't get used that often, or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they get used incorrectly very often. So some of the things that, that we need to think about to kind of prepare ourselves uh, for this episode, uh, really a question comes up a lot that I think is really interesting, and that is how often are mothers of these life-limiting diagnoses, we'll talk about that definition in a minute, how often do they carry their babies to term? We're going to talk about that as compared to um, if the mom has a specific diagnosis, how often do they list that as the reason for seeking a termination versus other reasons? Um, the availability of these perinatal hospice support groups can really reduce the number of abortions among parents there that have this diagnosis uh, because many of them will carry their baby to term if they're offered the right support network. So all of that to say, this is important stuff. Pay attention because it's good. And because Tracy is going to tell us about a model that is holy and healthy and deserves to be copied around the country. Yeah, and we're going to talk about this concept. And I say concept because that's really what it is, the concept of perinatal hospice. We don't mean a building. We don't mean a technology or a medication, but we're talking about a concept. And if we think about the definitions, literally, Perinatal refers to some time, usually in weeks, immediately before birth to just after birth. And hospice literally means a home for providing care to those who are sick or more commonly terminally ill. So we're talking about hospice idea for adults originated centuries ago, but the modern hospice movement started in about the 60s in England. Perinatal hospice is a newer concept, isn't it? It is completely new, and I can't wait to explore that more uh, with our guest. You may have heard terms like perinatal mortality, and that's a term that's thrown around and can be very confusing. It refers to the death of a fetus or a neonate. That's uh, that's uh, the basis to calculate the perinatal mortality rate. So neonatal birth, um, excuse me, a neonatal death is a death that happens from birth to the first 28 days of life. So that's a one-month-old or less. An infant death is 29 days to one year of life. Uh, And and so fetal mortality, which is another word that we hear that may come up tonight, refers to stillbirths or fetal deaths, generally any death of a fetus that's 20 weeks or 500 grams or more. Now, the real challenge is if we talk about state-by-state and country-by-country, Everyone defines these in a non-standard way. So it can be very deceiving whenever you hear that your state has a terrible perinatal mortality rate. The first thing you should do is ask, how does our state calculate it? Because if you're going to compare 
Indiana to Ohio, you need to know if they, if they use the same definition of those terms. Spoiler alert, many of them do not. So now, does perinatal include some neonatal and some fetal? It can, but it doesn't have to. Uh, but I think logically, most people would assume that it does. But again, you've got to pull back the layers and read those studies carefully and understand. I noticed in preparing for today's show on the Indiana website, they do a really nice job of defining the terms. I looked at a couple of other Midwestern states. It wasn't quite as clear how they define them. So, you know, the, the astute reader or researcher really needs to pay close attention to that. Um, more important definitions, as you mentioned in the intro, trisomy. We're going to talk a lot about that tonight. Um, and it's the presence of an extra chromosome or three chromosomes. So we've talked about it on the show before. Remember, we have 23 chromosomes, two copies of each, plus we have two sex chromosomes, either an XX or an XY. Trisomy is when you have an extra or a third instead of two of some chromosome. So some of the more common ones, and I know some that we'll be talking about tonight, um, trisomy 21, three copies of the 21st chromosome. That's also called Down syndrome. Or trisomy 18, three copies of the 18th, as you might guess. That's also called Edwards syndrome. Or there's one called monosomy X or 45X, instead of 46XX or XY, that's also called Turner syndrome. So, so that's, instead of a trisomy, that's a monosomy. Exactly. One exactly. when we should have two. Right. So uh, the, the blanket term or the generalization are called the aneuploides. Aneuploidy just means um, the incorrect copy of chromosomes. So we'll often hear uh, in, in pregnancy care, a woman's overall risk of aneuploidy. That would include all of the too few copies, too many copies. But we're going to talk uh, a fair bit tonight, I know, with our guests on each of these trisomies. But I have a recent experience that, that I found very moving um, with one of our patients. And obviously, I'm not going to use her name. But she found out rather accidentally that her child inside of her early in the pregnancy had trisomy 18 or Edwards syndrome. And I say accidentally because I think it's worth pointing out, many patients don't realize what they're saying yes to in their OBGYN's office. They say, you want this blood test to see if the baby's okay, right? Well, most people innocently say yes to that. In reality, in retrospect, maybe they would have preferred to have said no once they realize the slippery slope they found themselves. Uh, this patient was one of those. She found out through a blood test that uh, it was very highly likely that it was trisomy 18. And that's a devastating diagnosis that we'll talk more about with our guests. Those children don't usually survive, not to term, and they don't usually survive very long after term. She had a confirmatory ultrasound with an expert that told her that was a mistake. The baby didn't have trisomy 18. Oh, my goodness. Then she had the ultimate test, which is called an amniocentesis, uh, where a needle's passed in the mom's belly, into the uterus, uh, into the sac around the baby, and chromosomes are actually taken out. And that test confirmed her child did have trisomy 18. Wow. This was a remarkable woman and her husband and her family. Uh, and they cared for this child beautifully through the pregnancy and beautifully through the few weeks uh, that their child lived after birth. So it's really, the minute I started thinking about tonight's episode, I could see her face and her husband's face. And it was a great reminder that we're not talking about something academic uh, and esoteric tonight. We're talking about things that happen to real people uh, and real families. And these are most definitely real issues. In your career, you know, how often do you see this in a given year, Chris, one of the aneuploidies? Yeah, you know, it's, it's probably true in, in your specialty of dermatology. You'll seem like you haven't done it in forever, and then you'll do several in a row. Yes. In these last few months, I can think of several aneuploidies or chromosomal uh, abnormality numbers. And then a close friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, I just diagnosed her with a non-chromosomal serious, uh, serious fetal birth defect. So uh, statistically, uh, it comes up relatively infrequently, but these are so charged with emotion that when you have one or two, it can feel like it happens every day. Got it. So what are some, 
you know, life limiting diagnoses that are not aneuploidies? You know, that's a great term that you just used, isn't it? Life limiting. Uh, and it gets back again to definitions. You know, we doctors don't always use the greatest words when we're communicating serious things. No. Well, Off- well the other term before that was what? Lethal diagnosis. Or, or worse. worse than that, incompatible with life. Yes. And to which I always thought, how can you tell a mother that her child who is alive inside of her has a diagnosis incompatible with life and they're still alive? That exactly. sort of seems moronic, doesn't it? But uh, it fetal, uh, excuse me, fatal, uh, lethal, incompatible with life, those are all terms that really shouldn't be used. Uh, a life limiting is a much more uh, realistic and affirming and compassionate way to describe that. And there's really lifestyle limiting diagnoses, <laughs> you might say. So a child could be born maybe with clubbed feet. Uh, or maybe with a cleft lip or cleft palate or something like that, that isn't going to shorten the span of their life. Whereas these aneuploidies, the trisomies and and the like, they probably are going to shorten the natural lifespan of the child. Uh, So they're called life limiting, but they're certainly not incompatible with life. And I know we're going to talk a lot more about that with our guests. And before we do that, we will go to our patented medical trivia question of the day. Category... Dr. Jerome Lejeune's cause for canonization. Of course, Dr. Jerome Lejeune is the uh, discoverer of the first cause of a genetic syndrome, which was trisomy 21 in 1959. So the question is, in 1959, he and his colleagues published a paper describing their discovery of three copies of chromosome 21 in patients with Down syndrome. He died in 1994. On June 28, 2007, a cause for his canonization was open, and in a twist that I suppose only God could devise, the last name of the Paris Archbishop that opened the cause is the French word for the total number of chromosome pairs in a human being. What was this Cardinal Archbishop's last name? If you took French in high school like I did, you'll figure out the answer, and if you're really smart, you'll know it anyway. But we'll be back with our special guest, Tracy Windsor, here on Dr. Doctor after the break. We are fortunate to have our special guest of the day with us now, Tracy Windsor, MPA. She's going to tell us what in the world MPA stands for, not MBA. Uh, She is the co-founder of Be Not Afraid, a phrase made popular by none other than St. John Paul II. But it's also now a national case management service supporting parents caring to term babies with really sometimes devastating prenatal diagnoses. Uh, She works and has worked in the field of parent advocacy, uh, easy for you to write, around prenatal diagnoses for over 11 years. And she's provided direct support to over 170 families, welcoming families with life-limiting disabilities. Her focus within this is supporting parents in developing plans uh, for the birth and uh, the newborn care of children with difficult diagnoses. She's the primary uh, trainer at Be Not Afraid, and she's provided workshops and service development support around the country, including our own diocese here in Northeast Indiana. Tracy, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Tracy, okay, MPA. I've never met an MPA. Um, and it just made me think, I don't drink beer, but isn't there some, some um, what do they call it, the the beers that they make? Uh, that would be an IPA. IPA. I knew it was. Knew. Okay, this has nothing to do with brewing beer, right, Tracy? No, no, absolutely. So it, do, it doesn't stand for a master's in people who have aneuploidies. That would be, <laughs> no, that would make more sense. That's not it either. So no. tell us what it means, Tracy, and how well, you got there. I have a master's degree in public administration. And uh, I got there because my undergraduate degrees were in English and psychology and I loved English, but I thought I could support myself working in psychology. And then I realized by the time I got to the end of my senior year of college that I did not want to work with people in crisis. Um, so the next thing I imagined I could do was maybe manage the people <laughs> with the people in crisis. So rather than get an MSW, I got a master's in public administration. So you don't do anything emotionally taxing now, do you? Yeah, I. What happened to that? I know. <laughs> I, I imagine I what we're figured gonna... me out. 
<laughs> yes. So he sent you there. And, and to add on top of that emotional layers, you have six very easy to raise sons, too. I bet that's not emotionally challenging at all. No, not at all. Yeah, and for a long time. Well, they're grown now, so there's really just one son left at home, so it's somewhat easy. But although I think probably having adult children is harder than having young children, but yes, God also figured me out in the children for sure. <laughs> so Tracy, Tracy, in our intro, we talked about um, you know what exactly it is that you do, but help us and our listeners know what led to the founding of Be Not Afraid. Well, my, my co-founder and I were working in parish-based uh, perinatal loss ministry, and we had a year that we call the year of our two Aidens, when we had two families who presented with uh, prenatal diagnoses that the parish just, just wasn't prepared to deal with. The first was a mother who had a diagnosis of um, polycystic kidneys, uh, no amniotic fluid, baby was supposed to die, she had sought out pe- uh consult from a priest. He had advised her that he thought if baby was dying anyway, she could probably go ahead and induce labor at 21 weeks and deliver this baby. Um, She came to us as a lost mother after having done that and didn't really, the word abortion wasn't attached until she received a hospital bill. um, Oh, really? So they try to hide this, don't they, sometimes? Often soft language, yeah. And most people don't realize that you might actually go to the hospital where you were going to deliver to end a pregnancy. People think that's, you know, that you would go to an abortion clinic if you were having an abortion. And this was called an induction of labor. Sometimes it's called a medical interruption of pregnancy. So she was just uh, very confused and rushed to make a decision with soft language and sought out consult, but father didn't really understand what he was hearing as well. And so very burdened. Well, that same year that her baby was Aiden, the same year we had another Aiden, the family was very well known within our parish. And um, they had four or five other kids, had been told the diagnosis was trisomy 18, baby would die at birth. And the news was just so sad and devastating that they didn't know how to tell anyone. So um, our little lost ministry got the phone call when baby had been born, he was in NICU, and they were trying to figure out what to do with him. So, um, you know, we looked at the situation and we thought, gosh, we have this great loss ministry, but we have these two families um, that didn't find the support that they needed. And so we started, my co-founder and I, looking at what that support might look like and who should be doing it. I always tell people we thought God was telling us, go find somebody to do that support. After about two years, we realized that God maybe was telling us to be the support. <laughs> God found you. God found us. Um, and I we found really- it, I found in my career when that call comes, it's best if you just don't answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Even now, I think if I had known, you know, this was probably 14 years ago, if I had known 14 years ago what we were moving towards, I definitely wouldn't have answered the phone call, but I still was in my mind thinking, well, we can try this. It's probably not going to work because who would refer to us anyway? Um, But I had my master's in public administration and my co-founder is a CPA. So we knew how to, you know, put together the nuts and bolts in a serious way. And we developed a model of care and we had a pastoral care manual and we went out into the world and invited people to, allow us to support them. And finally, someone did. So, so Tracy, just briefly, give us an, a picture of what your, your company or your organization is and how you go about your work. So a, a family with a diagnosis is introduced to you maybe by their provider or, uh, or by a, a priest or someone else, and they call you or they go onto your website. What, what do you do then? So initially, we started out as a a peer ministry, because it's what we knew, what we had been doing in bereavement ministry. Probably over the last five years or so, we've evolved into also providing case management. So, so as a peer ministry organization, we uh, provided parents with a community, in a sense, to land, a safe place to come when you had a prenatal diagnosis and no one else that you knew or loved had ever had this happen to them. So, uh, you know, understanding of the crisis, compassion, pastoral support. We always have worked on having a new language to reframe the experience, whether it's removing lethal language and attaching life-limiting language, things like that. Um, And almost always 
the first confirmation to parents that they are shocked and bereaved and very likely traumatized. Um, so we would always seek out to kind of become like your new best friends. And in <laughs> fact, that first referral we had, um, I always tell the story, mom, we lost the heartbeat at 32 weeks, baby had trisomy 13. Her name was Haley Grace. And she had trisomy 13 and a, and a, and a terrible heart and a terrible brain. Um, and so myself and another peer were at the <clears throat> induction. We're waiting for her to be born still. And um, I had gone out to the nurse's station to look for coffee at like 2 a.m. And one of the nurses said, I need the cards for you because I didn't know you were a service. I just thought this woman, this woman had the best friends in the world. Um, <laughs> so we thought that was the first time that I thought, well, okay, I, somehow this is going to work. There's some other plan beyond just our ability to look like we know what we're doing, that maybe we're actually offering something that's valuable. Relative to case management support, which I said we've developed more into in the last four or five years, has really evolved from the need to provide more specific support to parents as they plan for birth. Um, so as a peer ministry, we might say, you know, we're here with you in this journey. As a case management support, we offer a personalized plan the path forward, taking into consideration the specifics of baby's diagnosis, um, kind of the medical community in which the parent lives, what the level of support is for them, making certain that they understand their decision points along the way, um, that they have access to information and appropriate mm -hmm. referrals so that they can understand options and so on like Excellent. that. Excellent. Now, you said something um, earlier that really, that really reminded me of some confrontations that I've had. And in your introductory sort of case, you mentioned that a priest had given some incorrect advice yeah. uh, and suggested that since the child was going to die, expediting that was okay. And I've certainly encountered that a lot in pregnancy-related issues and contraception and sterilization. But this idea that a well-meaning, holy priest can just be wrong when they're not acting in persona Christe, right? And I'd be interested to know what that conversation between you and the patient sounded like. How did you tell her that her priest was actually incorrect? You know, it's a different conversation after she's already, you know, had the abortion, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it's an easier conversation sometimes before. We were, when, when we were discussing it with the mom, the first Aiden's mom, we were very gentle about it, but it had to be said. Sure. Particularly because I feel like she felt very guilty, very guilty about what she had done, and yet she had done everything that any Catholic woman would do to make certain that they were making the right decision. I remember famously she said to me, "I'm a pro-life Catholic woman. I wouldn't have done this oh. if I had known." So it was a different conversation. We do mm -hmm. sometimes have to have conversations with moms who have come to us. Maybe they're undecided, or they've come to us. They're carrying to term, and they're getting information that isn't exactly um, accurate. A lot of times the easiest thing for us is to refer them to the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Sure. Um, it's always surprising to me that, um, you know, maybe there aren't more priests that realize that that resource exists specifically to help people understand um, ethics. But Tracy, for listeners who may have someone in their life who is carrying a baby like that, how would you recommend they talk to them about this delivery at 21 weeks or so, not truly being a delivery, but an abortion. What's, what's the way to approach that for a woman who is, is truly ignorant? She, she just doesn't know. Right. I think a couple of things. We actually do a training on this specific process for the best ways to encourage a family to carry the term. The best thing that you can do for someone who's undecided or abortion-minded is to provide them a connection to comprehensive support for carrying to term. The research indicates that 80% roughly of parents who receive a serious prenatal diagnosis will abort, but 80% will carry to term if offered comprehensive support to carry to term. So the, so the one primary thing that we should all be remembering is that parents with a prenatal diagnosis want a better option than abortion. Um, so I, you know, I always encourage people quickly to make the referral to a Be Not Afraid or some similar pro-life organization prepared to provide support. I think other important things are to separate the soft language that might be there, to do it gently, but to make clear 
that if you are inducing labor at 21 weeks with the intention not of saving the baby, but of killing the baby, that in fact is illicit. That's an abortion. Um, and another thing too, you know, parents will tell you at diagnosis, they're very clear that the focus shifts in an instant from the perspective of the baby. And, and most of these people are established with obstetric providers. So they can tell that everything shifts away from you're expecting a baby, here's all the things we're gonna to do to take care of this baby, to a focus that says, well, the pregnancy is the problem now and we have an intervention for that, it's abortion. So we really encourage family members and friends to keep returning back to the baby. Mm. The, the baby really hasn't changed for the parents. Their sense that the baby has changed is what's occurred. And they're often very much being pressured to think that they have to act quickly around this new information with baby, but fundamentally they need to give themselves time to parent this baby appropriately. And obviously abortion isn't a- Tracy, what are some of the challenges when these babies are born alive? Tell our listeners what kind of of problems these babies have. Um, Well, when you're talking about the babies with trisomy 13 or 18, uh, they can have a host of physical anomalies Um, an assortment sometimes, depending on the particular baby. Sometimes there'll be things along the midline. So you might have a baby with a heart issue, a brain issue. There might be something going on with the abdomen, like organs outside the body. Um, Sometimes cleft lip, cleft palate. Um, Now, some babies with trisomy 13 and 18 don't have any of those things. And those are the babies that we would consider, if we see them prenatally, to be more robust. Um, Some babies have a difficult heart and a difficult uh, brain. Some babies just have abdominal organs outside the belly. So, you know, whereas oftentimes the information provided to parents about a baby with 13 or 18 is uh, kind of like, oh, they're all alike and they're all dying. Um, These variations are, it's really important to be conscious of these. And even with regard to a heart defect, you can have a devastating heart defect and you can have a heart defect, which is more common with these babies is a VSD which is a hole in the heart. It's the most common heart defect for any baby, not just a baby with 13 or 18. So even with regard to the physical anomalies, there might be better news or more significant news. So Tracy, in the beginning, uh, before you joined us, I talked about a patient of mine who I said she sort of accidentally got her diagnosis of trisomy 18. And it was through what we often call non-invasive prenatal testing. Um, Help our listeners understand really what that is and what concerns someone like you might have with uh, this testing? Non-invasive prenatal testing is a, is a new test. Um, women my age, we were used to the triple test or the quad screen. This is the new maternal blood test that's done usually in the first trimester. It can be done as early as 10 weeks. And it's looking for fetal DNA in mom's blood. It has a number of product names, maternity T21, Verify, Harmony, the Panorama prenatal screen. Um, And these tests have been marketed aggressively to uh, physicians and also to parents as being 99% accurate. The accuracy rate is more about uh, negative results in so much that it is highly accurate because most people who take the test (laughs) don't have a baby with a genetic syndrome and therefore the the test has a good uh, rate at identifying people that don't have a diagnosis. What is problematic, and the manufacturers are clear about this, is what's called the positive predictive value, which means the proportion of tests that are positive, which in fact are true positives. Um, And in fact, that the concern about positive predictive value is significant enough that the manufacturers um, recommend that all positive results be confirmed by invasive testing, such as an amnio. And that's so, what happened in Chris's story. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, we had a mother who was 21 years old, um, and she was given, uh, she had screened positive with one of the tests for the diagnosis of trisomy 13. Um, the positive predictive value is uh, most problematic the younger the mother, and, and also is more problematic based on how rare the condition diagnosed is. So, I thought. I thought I could anticipate probably what I was going to find out was the positive predictive value for a 21-year-old woman getting a positive screening result of trisomy 13. 
But when I went online, because there is a NIPT predictor online, there, and she'd been offered abortion and declined it twice. Um, when I plugged in the numbers, let me see here, there's a 94% chance it was a false positive. So 6% of them were po- the positives were true positive. That's awful. Awful. And, and if, offering abortion based on that, even if you believed in abortion, that's crazy. And even as a woman carrying to term, um, she was being told that she needed to do the amnio to prove the baby didn't have trisomy 13. Now, positive predictive value, 94% for a woman who's 21 sounds pretty bad, but even if she had been a 40-year-old woman, it would still be positive predictive value of 50%. So the test has- Did you mean it was 6% positive predictive? 6%? No, there was a 94% that that her positive was a false positive. Right, so the positive predictive value was 6% then. Yes, thank you, yes. So, and it's only 50-50 once a woman, once even a woman who's 40 years old with the diagnosis of trisomy 13. Um, What's the value of these tests, Chris, from your perspective as an OB-GYN? Well, you know, it's a problem. That's why I said sort of accidentally, because it's this fallacy, sadly, of so-called informed consent. Because when, when you have this conversation that the three of us are having about this and, and other tests in medicine, but particularly, you know, in pregnancy, it takes some time and you've, you've got to walk through these kind of abstract academic terms of statistics for someone to realize, hold on, I wasn't even sure I wanted to know the information in the first place. Now you've told me that it may not be the information that I thought I was getting and that I have two choices. One is I can try to ignore it for the remainder of my pregnancy, not, not easy to do, or I can take another step and try to get uh, a yes/no, as I like to call it, test. Not a statistical probability, but a true yes/no. Which, in most cases, for chromosomal abnormalities, would be the amnio. But here's another white elephant in the room: the amniocentesis test itself can cause the loss of a baby oh. at around 0.5 to 1 percent. Now, some of my peers would argue with that and say that I'm overstating that risk. But I can tell you so many times in my career that I've seen patients who get the amnio while they're waiting on the amnio results to come back. They come in for a routine exam. We can't find the baby's heart rate. The baby has died. A few days later in the mail comes the chromosome results and they were normal. So this other test drove her to get the test that actually had a risk and probably cost her the life of her child, all because they never had this conversation that the three of us have just had. Well, let's come back after our break with some good news here on Dr. Doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. And we're with Tracy Windsor, the co-founder of Be Not Afraid. So, Tracy, we were talking about this a little bit before the break, but this non-invasive prenatal testing, uh, help us understand, and I'm not being cynical, is there, a, is there a role for this testing? And if so, what is that role? I think often it's, uh, it's probably more likely to be a misunderstood role without understanding the risks associated with the test. So a lot of women are asking for this test because it is the quickest way, the earliest way to find out whether you're having a boy or a girl. And often the test is also offered to women who are pro-life or Catholic as an alternative to amniocentesis. So you don't need to worry about amniocentesis anymore. You can have this test without disclosing to moms that the positive um, will need to be confirmed with an amniocentesis. And also that oftentimes the positive, particularly if you're looking at a diagnosis like trisomy 13 or 18, will impact your obstetric care and your care that you can secure for baby. You had said something about, you know, are you just going to be able to walk away from the result? Most often our parents find that they can't walk away from the result in the absence of taking the invasive yes, no test. Um, 
because providers will presume then that baby has this condition and start limiting care, whether that's fetal monitoring during labor and delivery or respiratory support at birth. It's an interesting idea to think that electing to get your blood drawn could actually pose risks. (laughs) You think, well, there's no risk of just a little needle in my arm, but it's so much more than that. And once that, once that blood gets in the tube and goes to the lab, you, you can't pretend you can't get that back in and you've got to deal with that result. Yeah. Great point. You know, I can, I've been doing this a long time and I remember thinking if we just convince someone not to terminate the pregnancy based on maybe a diagnosis of an aneuploidy, we've won the battle. But uh, you and others have helped us understand the battle's not really over. Um, help, us, help us walk through what that really means and looks like. Um, you know, 12 years ago when we started Be Not Afraid, we were very focused on the abortion as being the primary risk to the life of a baby with sure. a life-limiting prenatal diagnosis. And then over time, as we had more families get two live births and we had more experiences in terms of trying to secure whatever care parents might want, and certainly from a Catholic perspective, the most basic elements of care, um, we realized that there is a second threat to the life of the baby with a life-limiting prenatal diagnosis that, you know, we would like to think that the medical community that offered abortion would make the shift with the parents when the parents committed to the life of the baby in utero. And for whatever time, God deemed that baby's natural life to last, but we found that wasn't accurate. Um, and so They're not truly pro-choice, are they? Uh, Any of well, these people? Yeah, not truly. Yes, right. Um, and we've also found that you know, in the in the pro-life community, we have a very positive perspective of perinatal hospice, which is a wonderful service developed by a pro-life doctor for the purpose of supporting parents and caring to term. Be not afraid would not exist if it hadn't been for the fact that we learned about and and built our our model of care largely on perinatal hospice. But in truth, many of the perinatal hospice providers are either community-based agencies, hospice agencies that don't want to have a position on abortion or don't necessarily have a special interest in disability advocacy for a child born with severe disability, and or they're the hospitals, which may be the abortion provider around a prenatal diagnosis, and may or may not also have a special sensitivity around um, asserting the dignity of a life with severe disability. So um, so we find that perinatal hospice providers, although we as pro-lifers think of them as a pro-life service, the actual mm-hmm. individuals providing that service may not even be interested in encouraging parents to carry the term, may not be willing to share the research that supports, particularly for mothers, that the immense emotional benefits for mothers who carry to term versus those who abort and may not be willing to advocate for the life of the baby at birth. So the term perinatal hospice is not a, it's not a stamp of approval in itself. And that before we were to refer someone to an organization or or suggest a friend to go there, we need to make sure we understand where they stand on on the actual matters of life, don't we? Yes, absolutely. How would a listener figure that out, Tracy? if they wanted to find a truly pro-life perinatal hospice? Uh, I think one of the easiest things to do is there's a wonderful website, um, a perinatalhospice.org, I'm pretty sure is the website. And they have an FAQ page, about halfway down that FAQ page, you'll find a question that says something like, isn't it better for the mother to abort? And they cite all the research there that explains the benefits for mothers both emotional and physical. So you could call a perinatal hospice provider. You could ask if they were familiar with that information. Do they share that information with parents who are undecided? Um, Are they even familiar with that information? Oftentimes you'll find they don't even know that that information has been published. That's how to take care of the abortion side of it. With regard to how interested they are in advocating for the lives of babies, it's a matter of finding out whether they would support parents in fetal monitoring. Would they support parents in securing a C-section if there's fetal distress? Um, are babies provided with stabilization and evaluation at birth? Or is this there this perception that all of these babies die and therefore there's really no need to provide any particularly extensive planning for baby before they're born? So where abortion has been the main threat to these unborn babies, now withdrawal of care 
is another threat. Yeah. Yes. And we actually have research that, that shows that. We've had published, published research relative to trisomy 13 and 18 that looked at one month and one year survival rates by state and found variability. Um, and certainly anecdotally, some of that variability can be traced to how infants with trisomy 13 and 18 are treated in those individual states. Probably most importantly, um, a study was published in 2016 in the American Journal of Medical Genetics that showed that prenatal diagnosis was the strongest independent factor uh, negatively associated with longevity. 64% of the babies with a prenatal diagnosis died in the first day versus 1% of those who were diagnosed after birth. Wow. You wanted to consider that maybe some of those children who were diagnosed after birth, maybe they required ventilation or something, maybe getting them discharged would be harder because over a week you would realize they had this diagnosis and they couldn't be saved. Actually, what they found was that almost double the number of children with the postnatal diagnosis survived a discharge versus those with a prenatal diagnosis. So clearly, these babies are dying from something other than just having trisomy 13 or 18. Um, And perhaps it's the care that they're getting at birth. And you wrote an article for the National Catholic Bioethics Center related to part of what this is related to feeding. Tell us about that. So we, in 2019, uh, we began to see kind of a pattern where, where um, we would say these babies can't have a bad day in NICU. So if a baby with trisomy 13 threw up, pretty quickly somebody would say, well, okay, that's because they can't be fed. And that would be the end of feeding. There wouldn't be any consideration of do they need a different formula? You know, is there a different bottle we should use? Not, none of that. Um, so we went to the NCBC primarily to say if someone's going to assert that a baby can't be fed, how much, how much clinically do they have to do to provide the parents with information for the parents to be certain that agreeing to not feeding is licit? Um, and as we were talking, one of the things that was said, I said something about, you know, most of these families have limited care before baby's ever born. They've made the agreement to limit care before baby's born. And one of the ethicists said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, that's what perinatal hospice is. They agree to limit care before the baby's born. And they were like, before the baby's born and examined? And I was like, yeah, before the baby's born. Um, So, you know, the Catholic teaching would be, and it makes perfect sense. It's just that, you know, you don't know what you don't know when you're in work. They didn't know what they didn't know. We didn't know what we didn't know. But, um, you know, this would be the only time in a medical situation in which uh, the care would be determined before the person was ever examined. Mm -hmm. And so Catholic teaching would require that these babies be stabilized and examined, and then a decision be made about what care could be provided. So Um, Tracy, without being too, um, too medical, I guess, but it's something parents could often hear the phrase, uh, feudal care, uh, care that has no hope of of providing any good. What's the difference in, um, if you're a neonatologist, and care that that's, might be labeled as futile versus care that's appropriate, compassionate, uh, and ethical? What's the, what's the difference there, and is it easy to spot? Um, you know, it's a difficult question because it is there is something called futility care, which is the suggestion that if you treat someone like they're dying, and you you start calling more and more things futile, you will actually ultimately withdraw something that could kill that person. Mm. A self-fulfilling um, prophecy. Yes. So, I, I, you know, it, it, it's kind of hard to give a general answer because you almost have to be at the bedside with the mm. baby. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, what we see, and I think what most parents want is... Um, Number one, an opportunity for baby to prove themselves. Um, The possibility to make certain, for instance, if you've had a fetal echocardiogram, we know that no heart, no pediatric heart surgeon would touch a baby based on that fetal echo. Because the baby has trisomy 13, they may never get to the echo on the living child. So what parents want is baby to prove themselves. Can we please have the echo on the living child? So we know for certain that that heart condition is as expected. Mm the trial of respiratory support that seems to be effective for many of these babies. And, um, and then I think the possibility, uh, you know, most parents with a 
trisomy 13 or 18 diagnosis are very clear about the fact that that might result in the death of the baby. And they're prepared for that. Certainly if they've been supported by us, they're prepared for that. Mm -hmm. What they don't want is for baby to die from the absence or the removal of some care that's basic, whether that's feeding, um, monitoring of blood sugars, um, warmth, um, oxygen starvation. Yeah. 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 And, and we don't have families that ultimately like, you know, we, in our support, we don't have the families that have a baby ventilated for weeks and weeks and are arguing about whether baby can survive. Most of our families, I think because we allow them to entertain the notion of what a living, thriving baby with trisomy 13 or 18 would look like, they can, they can pretty quickly see if baby is just too complicated. And for many of them, they're not in an area where surgeries are going to be readily available for their babies. So that ends up making the decision for them. Tracy, we have time for one more question. And I think it's an incredibly important one because I think there are probably people out there listening who want to start something in their area so that a true pro-life perinatal hospice can be there. You're based out of what, Charlotte, North Carolina. How can you export your expertise to other parts of the country to those who want to start a true pro-life perinatal hospice? So we pretty quickly, after we founded, we, we tried to make available as much as possible our training and our pastoral care manual and our mentoring. So if anyone is interested, they can reach out via the contact button at our website, which is benotafraid.net, and they'll get a response back within 24 hours. Our trainings are online. Our manual is available electronically. We do charge a fee, but it's not a very expensive fee. And then we provide mentoring to help them serve families until they feel like they've got a competency sufficient to do this without our support. So we definitely are interested. I mean, we're serving parents nationally because there aren't enough pro-life organizations involved in this work. It is definitely a need. Tracy Windsor doing God's work for unborn, newborn, and babies with uh, challenging diagnoses. Thank you for being with us on Dr. Doc. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. And Tom, it's time, as all of our listeners know, for the answer to the trivia question. And this, I think, might be one of my favorites uh, to date. If for no other reason, uh, I really like Dr. Jerome Lejeune. It, most people know, if they remember at the beginning, he discovered the chromosomal basis uh, for Down syndrome, or more appropriately, trisomy 21. But there's a little twist with him that you pointed out, and that is in his cause for canonization, uh, the cardinal who opened his cause, uh, the archbishop, I should say, the last name of this individual is the French word for the total number of chromosomes that we humans have. And the question is, what is this Cardinal Archbishop's last name? And, and Chris gave the English answer earlier. There are 23 pair of chromosomes. We have 46 chromosomes. So the Archbishop's last name in French is literally 23 in English, or Cardinal Vantois, <laughs> Cardinal 23. I mean, that's just crazy coincidence, right? I think it's kind of some divine approval for what Jerome Lejeune did with his life, which was amazing. That it was, that it was. And what an amazing uh, show. I have to say, I think this has been, Tracy was a terrific guest and just hearing about her work makes me want to run it and do something to help. Yes, it, it does. You know, I had to deal with one of these questions recently with somebody I know. And that when I heard that a mom with a baby around 20 weeks gestation with one of these diagnoses was going to quote, deliver her baby. All I thought was, well, if she delivers the baby, the baby will die. If she doesn't deliver the baby, the baby's still alive. So Chris, you have something nice to say about, you know, if they're going to die anyway, what we can do anything to them. How does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, we're no bioethicist pair, are we? We're just simple country (laughs) docs, but yes, you know, just because you have a a so-called lethal diagnosis, we're all suffering from a life limiting condition. It's called life. Yes. We're all going to die. We just don't know the day or the hour. So just because a baby is going to die, doesn't mean that you can do anything that would shorten that baby's life. Now, what's even more bizarre is sometimes the greatest threat to that child is birth. So if the child is going to die right after birth, as often is the case with some of these trisomies, if you expedite their birth, 
guess what? You're expediting their death. Maybe well-intended, but nonetheless, you're expediting their death. So you can't do that. Uh, it's not that complicated. It's not very academic. So isn't another day alive a good thing for a mom and a dad to experience? You know, it's something that I learned to say a long time ago from a mentor of mine to parents who receive one of these prenatal diagnoses. And our listeners should hear this. Uh, and that is when you're pregnant, you're a mother. You're, you're not going to be a mother one day. <laughs> you are a mother. You have a child. And you don't know how long that child is going to live, just like you and I don't know how long any of our children are going to live. Um, so you should enjoy every instant of every minute of every day that the baby is inside of you, because none of us know what tomorrow brings. Um, and enjoy that and treasure that. Um, and in many cases, these children with so-called life-limiting diagnoses, if we will get out of the way and help them, uh, can live. You know, in preparation for today's show, I reviewed some material and a guest that you and I have had on the show, uh, Senator Rick Santorum, a retired senator from the great state of Pennsylvania. He has a daughter with trisomy 18 or Edwards syndrome. She's 12 years old. Uh, in May, she celebrated her 12th birthday. And uh, in the article that I read, she swims and she jumps on a trampoline and she rides a trike and he calls her their living angel. Thanks be to God. Thank you, listeners, for hearing this life-affirming message on another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you today from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And please send us your questions and or tell us how something you heard maybe, hopefully, positively changed your life. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.